Let's open our Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to try to finish the chapter today, maybe. See what happens. We have, uh, we have communion this morning as well. Paul is uh, writing to this church in Thessalonica that, that he was there to help start to establish this church. He was only there for a few weeks. He was only there for a few weeks and, and uh, God raised up a church. And he said, you know, you need to learn, you need to grow. And so he, he wrote this letter to them to encourage them, to strengthen them and, and to uh, help them uh, along their path of following Jesus. Um, we all need to grow. And that's what they, you know, they became believers, and, but they needed to grow. And this is like, I, I don't have it on, but the little bracelet that the kids make, you know, one of, the, one of the beads on the bracelet, they're all different colors for the gospel, but one of them is green, and that means grow. And so they were going to grow because Paul was, was going to pray for them, and, and he said he prayed for them, but he was also writing to them. But the word had gotten around about these people that, that they were, they were uh, just on fire, that God was doing something in their lives. It wasn't them trying to do it themselves, but God was doing something in them. It says that they didn't just receive the words, but the Holy Spirit and power came upon them, and they welcomed the word, and the message, it says, rang out from them. The word was getting around about the changes in their lives, and and uh, it makes me ask the question, you know, what, what's the word that's gotten around about you and me? And you say, well, they were just brand new believers. And I know that when we're brand new believers, it's pretty exciting. And, you know, we're just talking to everybody. But you know what? Uh, Paul wasn't a brand new believer. And Paul was excited because they were excited. And, and, and for us to, 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 to go at it for the long haul and to be constant, to be uh, consistent, the three things that they heard, let's read the verses here, verses 9 and 10 again. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. These three things, that, number one, that they turned to God from idols. Number two, that they were... They, they were serving, this is what they'd heard, that they were serving the living and true God. And number three, that, that they were waiting for his son from heaven. That's an example for us. The, the, the context here says that these were an, an example for the whole area, for all these people. And, and now, almost 2,000 years later, they're an example for us too. That you and I would be Number one, turn to God from idols. Number two, we would be serving him with our hearts, our whole hearts. And number three, we'd be waiting for his son from heaven. So let's look at these three points here in, in order. The first one, it says they turn to God. We talked about that a little bit last week, that that's really our only hope is to turn to God, to turn our hearts to him. We saw how Paul had this call from God when he first became a believer, that that was what he was going to, to, to do. They, he was going to go out and he was going to tell people about Jesus and they were, they were going to turn from darkness to light, from the power of God to Satan, so that they would receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those sanctified by faith in me. 
Paul goes on to say this. He says, So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That was the message. And, and this, this picture in the, in the book of Thessalonians is what actually happened. God fulfilling his call, his vision through his life, through Paul's life. But that last phrase there that he was, he was sharing, he was witnessing to King Agrippa in that chapter. He says that he preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. In other words, it had to be real. And when it's real, it comes out of our lives. Show some proof. Are you really, have you really turned to God or you just say, I turned to God, I turned to God. Or have you really turned to God and it's like obvious, like for these people it was obvious, like stuff was happening and, and their lives were showing it. Their actions were showing it. Repent and turn to God. We change direction. The change direction of our lives should show to the people around us. If we look exactly like the world around us, we probably haven't really turned to God. We probably haven't. If we look just like everybody, that doesn't mean to say we need to be like weird or like freaks. But there's something different about some, a person who's following, who's truly turned to God. When you look upon God, we're going to talk about this in a minute. When you look upon him and when we are focusing, we're, we're turning to him, it changes us. Because what we look at, we become like. Isaiah said, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, and I am God and there is no other. So Paul here, he says that they turn to God, but they turn to God from idols. And I, I've been thinking about that, and I, and I did some research a little bit about this, and, and this idea about idols, for them there in Thessalonica, they were about 50 miles only from Mount Olympus. And, it, and Mount Olympus basically is where the Greek gods all live, that they, that they all worship there. Idolatry was rampant there. They were only 50 miles from this place, Mount Olympus. You say, okay, well, that's kind of like what they were into. But you know what? That's not us today. We don't, we, we're not anywhere near that. We don't have, you know, statues on the corner to... You know, the different, different gods, the different people, uh, the different um, idols that they would worship. Maybe not on the street corners, perhaps. You know, but in India, they actually still have that. They do have on the street corners, they have little places where they have idols in there. And people go and they bring fruit and they bring little offerings to these idols. And, and these little, most of the time they have them locked up. Why would you have to lock up your God? I don't know, but they have them locked up so people can't just get in there and mess them up or something. I don't know what. There's a guy named Tim Keller, and he's a pastor of a big church in New York City, and, and he wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And uh, it's a very good book. And, uh, but let me, let me uh, quote to you what he said about idolatry and about this idea of counterfeit gods. He says to contemporary people, that's you and me, he says the word idolatry conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing down before statues. 
There was Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, Ares, the god of war, Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth, and many, many more. He said our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. He says we are no different. He says each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. He says what are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement but these same things that have achieved or assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society. Success, greed, he says, and listen to this quote, the human heart is an idle factory. The human heart is an idle factory. You, see, you might be sitting there saying, well, I don't ever worship idols. I don't ever follow anything. Do you know what? The human heart is deceptive. We're, we all have got these things that we're into, these things that are like taking up, taking up this place. There was a 17th century minister, and, and he, uh, he wrote about this idea, and he said this. He said, if we, if we think of our soul as a house, he says, idols are set up in every room. It's way, you know, it's way worse than you and I would think. Another quote from... Uh, from uh, Counterfeit Gods, he says, the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. He said, our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety, and fulfillment. Anything in life can serve as an idol, a God alternative, a counterfeit God. It is anything more important to you than God. We think about the things that consume us, the things that drive us, the things that are so important to us. And, and when, they, when they take a hold of us and when they are more important than God is, they're an idol. They are a counterfeit God. It's a great book. He talks really pretty much about money and uh, relationships and, and uh, the other things that, that our whole society, and he talked about you know, each culture, having its own set of idols. And our, our culture has its own set of idols. And are we, have we bought into all that? Are we like a, you know, consumed by the society around us? For the most part, we are. We're, we're, we've bought into it. And we have, to, we have to realize and search our own hearts. Ezekiel said, Son of man, these, men's, these men have set up idols in their hearts. Maybe the idols aren't on the street corner, but we got them in our hearts where God doesn't have that number one place. That's what it said about these Thessalonians. They turned to God from idols. John said, keep yourselves from idols. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, flee from idolatry. In Romans chapter 1, kind of the, the whole, as Paul develops this whole, this whole uh, idea of, you know, where we stand as a human race, he says that, he says this, that, that mankind exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created, created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. This is kind of where we all went wrong, where we turned away from God to worship and serve created things. We make our own gods. They're not really gods. That's what he says here in Thessalonians. You know, you, you turn to the, the true and living God. 
from the things that we make, the things that we come up with. These are all human. They're all man-made. They're all human-created, these gods that, that we set up in our hearts. But he says, turn to God. There's only one God that, 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 is, that, that is worthy of worship. Another interesting thing uh, that he pointed out is that sometimes even our enemies become idols. You say, well, how could that be? Well, when we are more worried about what our enemies think than what, about what God thinks, it's taken, you see, it's taken a higher place. It's become an ultimate thing. It's become a, an idol in our own lives. One of the scariest passages I read uh, in the book of Revelation you know, during the Great Tribulation, there's horrible, horrible events that are occurring. And, and yet, it says in Revelation chapter 9, it said, The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands, and they still did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or, or their thefts. Despite the, 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 the wrath of God that it was being poured out, really, in the book of Revelation, it says they still did not repent. They still did not turn to God from idols, from the things of this world. Edith Schaefer, who was Francis Schaefer's wife, she said this, God makes clear to us that not only is it sin to bow down to idols and worship and serve them, but, there is a, there, but that there is an effect which follows very definitely. People who worship idols become like them. So the things we worship, the things we're consumed by, the things that take a place higher than God, we become like that. Things in this world. Another woman said this, growing spiritually complacent, and increasingly worldly, God's people fall down at idols of pleasure, indifference, and materialism. Wow. Is that us today? Is that our society today? I think so. Turn to God from idols. That, that factory, that idol factory that is in our hearts. And someone said this, that is there any hope? And he said, yes, there is, if we begin to realize that they must be replaced by God himself. That's the only way to, to, to make a change is to replace it with God himself, with a living, breathing relationship with the Almighty God. I want you to turn with me back just a, a page, really, to Colossians chapter 3. We looked at this many months ago. But Colossians chapter 3 this is, this is what Paul says in verses 1 and following. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. How are, we going to, how, how are we going to make a change? Well, this is what he says here, that to set our hearts and to set our minds on things above. Turn to God. Turn our, turn our minds and our hearts to God. That's really what God is calling us to do. That's really what, what makes a difference in this world when you and I 
are people whose hearts are turned towards him or minds are turned towards him. That doesn't mean we don't have to function in this world and in this life. We do. But what we put on the pedestal kind of comes out. It shows. If, if I'm completely consumed with, let's say, uh, uh, car mechanics, and it's like I live and breathe and, and my whole life is consumed with, with uh, working on cars and, and maybe, you know, people who are like that. I'm not, thank God. But, but we, can, we could take something like that and become so consumed by it. People say, well, that is what, that, that's really what he's worshiping. That's really what's most important to him. To him. They're not going to say, wow, what a believer. Turn to God from idols. Turn, they turned to God from idols. Can people say that about us? Can they say that about me? That's what I want to know. Well, maybe I don't want to know. Actually, we need to know. The writer to the Hebrews says these words. He says, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. How many times have we turned to God and then we kind of turn away because something gets our attention, something takes that place, something becomes huge, and we turn away and we follow after it, and, and then what do we do? Are we lost? No, no. What do we need to do? We need to turn back. We need to turn back. Incredible passage uh, in, in 1 Kings chapter 8 where Solomon is, you know, dedicating the temple, right? And he says, you know what, this place, and it's, it's really about the, the uh, symbolism of God's presence being there and, and that God himself would, would uh, manifest himself there. But he went through a whole list of things. He says, you know, when, when, when your people, and I'll read to you one of them. When your people have been defeated, people of Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you. And when they turn back to you and confess your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then from heaven hear and forgive the sin of your people and bring them back to the land you gave to their fathers. He had a whole bunch of examples of that. When, they, when we get sidetracked by this or that or the other thing, he says, turn back. When they turn back to you, he says, God, listen and hear respond to their cry. And, and I believe with all my heart that God hears that when you and I turn back to him and we go, wow, God, I'm sorry, I've been, I've been so consumed with this or that. My career, my success, what everybody else thinks. But I turn to you. I turn my heart to you. I turn my mind to you. And that's what matters. What you think matters. What you're doing matters. That's what's the most important thing. There's not a bunch of most important things. There's only one most important thing. That's worshiping the true and living God. Point number one, they turn to God from idols. Think about that. Number two, it says they turned to God from idols, but they turned to serve the living and the true God. Rather than serving those idols and the false gods, there's only one that we can serve. Only one true and living God. There's only one worth serving. All others are phony. They're imitation. They are counterfeits. They are fakes. They do want to take that place, but they have no right to take that place. The Bible talks about them 
over and over. You can read it from cover to cover. They can't hear, they can't speak, they can't do anything. Talks about in different places where the craftsman, he gets the wood and makes an idol or he gets some metal and he pours it and melts it and makes this God. You know, they're all handmade, they're all man-made. Why would, why would you and I, and it says then, they, then they, they make it, it's really cool, and then they get down and bow down before it. They made it with their own hands and then they get down and bow down before it. It's like, does that even make any sense? Well, make it a little bigger next time and then bow down before. You know, you can make the God to be whatever you want it to be. Well, I like it to be in the shape of a car or, you know, something else, the shape of a relationship that I have to have or a dollar sign and, and, and I, you know, I'm going to bow before that. Why serve them? They can't hear or speak. They can't do anything for you. They can't help me. Jeremiah said, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. The Lord, Yahweh, is the true God, the living God, the eternal King. That's the one we bow down before. That's the one we bend the knee to. I read these verses last week. I want to read them again, though. The heart of David, he said, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Psalm 42 and Psalm 84, he says, My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Wow. He wanted the living God. He wanted the truth. He wanted the real thing. And, 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 I, and I said a minute ago, I said that God hears the cries of our heart. When we cry out for him, I want the living God. I want the true God. I want a relationship with him. He hears that cry. He answers, I believe. And he will answer your cry for that too. To serve the living and true God, there is, no, there is nothing like it. To serve him to wait upon him and say, God, what is it that you would want me to do? How can I serve you in this world? In this brief life that I have, how can I serve you? Well, usually what it is is, you know, when I get done with what I want to do over here, then I'll come and check back with you, God, to see if maybe there's something you might want me to do. But, but hold on, I've got, I've got, you know, the stuff over here that I need and want, my will and my plan my purpose, my counterfeit gods, my idols. And he sits and he waits, waits for us to realize that it's emptiness over there. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all, it's all just going to vanish away. And he says, the real thing, the truth, he's waiting, he's sitting, waiting, watching for you and I to come back and say, here am I, send me, here am I, do whatever you want in my life and I want to just serve you. I just want to be a servant. That's all I want to be. That's all I want to do. Point number two. And finally, point number three, it says there that what Paul had heard, says they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And number three in verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. 
waiting for his son, waiting for Jesus to return. Are you and I waiting for him to return? Paul said to to Titus, he says, while we wait for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we're waiting for that return of Jesus. Have you, have you thought about it? You know, you know, let's be honest with ourselves. When, you know, when was the last time I thought about it today? Have I thought about it at all today? Well, maybe you know, now that I read this. Oh. How about yesterday, the day before? When was the last time I thought, you know, I just can't wait for him to come back? I just, I'm looking, I'm watching, I'm waiting for him to come back. I don't have a podium here to hit my fist on, but I'm just wanting him to come back. That's like consuming me. The blessed hope. Not wishful thinking, but the the confident expectation that Jesus is coming back. If we believe that he died on the cross for us, that he rose from the dead, well, we also need to believe that he said, listen, I am going to return. I am going to come back for you. One person wrote, it means more than just waiting. It, it, it means a, an expectant and active attempt to live for his glory in the meantime. For Jesus, waiting, looking, and watching. For Jesus to return. Notice he says there that, that he rescues us from the coming wrath. Wrath is coming. Wrath is coming, but Jesus is our rescuer. And he will rescue us. Revelations, you know, Revelation chapters 6 through 19 speak about this great tribulation when God pours his wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world, John Corson said. And Jesus is our only hope of rescue from that wrath. But listen what Spurgeon said. He said, to wait for his son from heaven. He said, oh, this is a high mark of grace when the Christian expects his Lord to come and lives like one that expects him every moment. He said, if you and I knew tonight the Lord would come before this service was over, in what state of heart should we sit in these pews or chairs? In that state of heart we ought to be. Are we thinking he may come tonight? He may come, he may return? Have we even thought about it? This is the word that was getting around. How did, how did that word get around? Well, they, they talked about it. You know what? Jesus is coming back. Well, I need to still pay the rent, and I still need to go to work, and I still need to do what I need to do, but Jesus is coming back, so i got to be ready for that. Despite all the other things I need to do, is he, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you understand that? He's coming back. He was here already, but he's coming back. Is it going to be tonight? I don't know. It could be tonight. But he's coming back, and i got to be ready for him. Should change the way we sit in these pews, right? Speaking about the wrath, though, another person wrote this, that Paul later in 1 Thessalonians, and we'll talk more about it then, he says, Paul used that expression, God did not appoint us to wrath. He says to refer to God's deliverance of his people in the context of the wrath to come upon the world in the last days. And he may have the same idea in mind here. He said, used technically, as it so frequently is in the New Testament, wrath is a title for that period just before Messiah's kingdom on earth 
when God will afflict earth's inhabitants with an unparalleled series of physical torments because of their rejection of his will. Jesus, the one who delivers us from the wrath to come, we're speaking about the rapture here. We're going to talk about that more later in this book. But listen to this. He says, the one we look for is Jesus, our deliverer from the wrath to come. But he, he gives us kind of two definitions, really. He says this description of the coming Savior may be understood in two ways. Number one, he delivers us from the eternal punishment of our sins. On the cross, he endured the wrath of God against our sins. So, yes, that is, that is awesomely true. He delivered us from, from eternal wrath, eternal separation, eternal punishment. He took the wrath that you and I deserve. But number two, he also delivers us from that coming period of judgment when the wrath of God will be poured out on the world that has rejected his son, the great tribulation. But someone else said this, looking at those two things, and I really like this kind of summing this up. He says, whether he means the wrath of the great tribulation or the ultimate wrath of eternity, he said, either must be urgently avoided. Either one. Whether you hold to a different view about the rapture or not, the truth of the matter is you and I need to be rescued from the wrath to come, and the rescuer is Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate communion, because he has rescued us through the cross. The Thessalonians, they had turned to God from idols. They were serving the living and true God. No point serving anybody, anything else. And they were waiting for God's Son from heaven. What an example from, from the Thessalonians. And what about us? What are people seeing out of our lives? Today is a special day for me. Say, why is that? We have donuts today. No, that's not why. <laughs> we do have donuts today, but that's not why. Today September 1st, 1976. I, 37 years ago today, I gave my life to Jesus Christ for the very first time. I turned from my own life to follow Jesus Christ 37 years ago today. And you know what? My life has never been the same. Has my life been perfect? Have I always been doing the right thing? No, I've, you know, I'm just like anybody else. I, I have to get it together. I have to get things straightened out. I have to get my focus back from you know, from things that begin to consume. But there is no life like following Jesus Christ. There is no comparison. Nothing that this world has to offer can compare to following Jesus Christ. Nothing at all. When I, when I went forward, you know, my whole idea was, was um, well, God, if you really are who they say you are, because I was going by what the people, Mike McIntosh and other people were saying, this is, what it, this is who Jesus is, this is what he did for you, and, all, and I'm saying, well, and this is what he's done for me and everything. Well, if you really are who they say you are, then I'm going to give you a chance in my life. That's what I said. How generous of me. I am going to give God a chance in my life. But, you know, it's ignorance, but, you know, that's who I was. That's what I knew. I didn't know. I didn't understand. 
But the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's what all I did. I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a chance. I'm going to taste and see if the Lord is good. And you know what? He is good. He is good. He is good. He is good. There's nothing, nothing in this life that can compare. 25 years ago, that was 37 years ago, 25 years ago in the month of September, we packed up our stuff. We packed up that little U-Haul trailer with all our idols. No, all of our stuff. There wasn't much. And we had a big old station wagon, and we, we uh, hooked it to the back of that with a bunch of kids in the back of the car. And 25 years ago in the month of September, we came out to New England. And it has been a journey. Let me tell you what. Following Jesus Christ is a journey, a journey that I will never, ever regret. Just being willing to do what he asks you to do. Sometimes people are say you're crazy. If you ask me right now, that was crazy. I had no job. We had no house. We had nothing. We had a friend that said, well, if you need to, you can stay here with us in New York, which isn't even New England. So we parked our trailer over there, and we drove around New England saying, well, here, Lord? Here, Lord? Here, Lord? And he said, no, no, not there. No, not there. Not there. And finally, it was like, here, Lord? Rhode Island? Okay, yeah, yeah, there. That's where I want you. We stayed for about a year, and we got discouraged, and someone said, no, you should be over here in Connecticut. And we said, okay. So we went over there, and the Lord said, what are you doing over here in Connecticut? I wanted you back in Rhode Island. I want you in Rhode Island. So after a year over there, we said, duh. And uh, we got back on the right track. We came back to Rhode Island. We, the weird thing is we moved right back into the very same house that we moved out of a year earlier. Like, when does that happen? In a house that overlooked the bay over here in Warwick. was thinking about it. Um, because we went for a walk. We don't live too far from there now. We went for a walk, and the gal that lives in that house, you know, we've got to meet her through the years, and she's taking us through the house. She's fixing it all up and everything, and she's, you know, we said, you know, 25 years ago in December, we moved into that house, and we lived there for a year, and then we moved out for a year, and we lived there again for another year and a half, and, and she's going, oh, wow. But, you know, the kids, they were just tiny, when we moved in there. To live on the bay? Like, following God. It was like, when I went to that house the first time, I was afraid to touch it. There was nobody there. I just knew the address. I could go and look at it. I was afraid to touch it because there's no way that I'm going to get to live here. That's just impossible. Because I've always wanted to live by the water, on the water. And you know what? God opened the door. Following, serving God, is there, there's nothing like it. There is nothing like it in this world. It doesn't mean you're all going to go live on the bay. We only live there for, you know, a certain amount of time. But God has provided. God has led us. God has taken care of us. God has been faithful, faithful, faithful. He sang that song never once. Never once did he ever, did we ever walk alone. Never once did he leave us on our own. Never once. God is faithful. 37 years 25 years out here in New England. What a journey. 
Tell you what, it's worth it. It's worth it. Don't ever think, don't ever get, don't ever get sidetracked by the things that, that this world say, you know what, this is where the worth is. No, the worth is right here following him. Let's pray together and then we're going to have the worship team come up and we're going to pass out the communion and, and partake together, shall we? Let's pray first. Our great and awesome living and true God, the one true living God, the only true and living God, we come and we, we, we stop, we pause for a few moments to focus on you, to turn to you from all the things that are, that are competing Maybe what we're going to make for lunch. Maybe uh, how we're going to take care of those bills. Maybe a problem we're facing. A trial that has just consumed us. And yet, you're waiting. You're watching for us to turn to you and say, God, it's all yours. What do you want? How do you want? We turn to you. We ask you, God, to be that only one that we worship, the only one that we serve, the only one that we watch and wait for, this, your son Jesus, to return for us. He's done so much for us. He's the only one that, that can rescue us from the wrath to come. God, I pray for this family, this group of people here this morning, God, you'd you know, our journey, each one of us has a journey, but I pray that, that we, would each, uh, we would each be like the Thessalonians and, and that we would be turning to, to you and serving you and waiting for you to return for us. God, fire us up, Lord, to be those people, to be like those people in Thessalonica were. I pray, Lord, this morning for any as well who have never maybe tasted and seen that the Lord is good. If that's you here this morning, you need to, and you, need, you want to give Jesus a chance in your life and find out if he really is who he says he is, well, you can do that today before we partake in communion. You can simply open your heart and say, Dear Jesus, I, I am lost, and I turn to you. I've been doing lots of stuff, stuff that I regret and I'm maybe even ashamed of, but I turn to you. Because you are the healer, you are the savior, you are the rescuer that we've heard about. And so I turn to you today. I believe in you and I receive you today. September 1st, 2013. It's a good day. In Jesus' name, amen.